Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. History often remembers poets of past eras as providing a window into the civilization of their time. The poet's words reveal life and feelings which we would otherwise never know. New England in the mid-19th century was the center of a renaissance of American poetry with Emily Dickinson being one of the leaders. Emily Dickinson, better known now than then, was well known for her phrases which sang out in a multitude of forms, meters, and styles. Her words presented her innermost feelings and thoughts. A passionate and witty woman, she made a craft and an art of her words and her life. I met with Emily Dickinson through the person of actress Wendy Norris in December of 1997 in the parlor of the Dickinson family home, magically carried from Amherst, Massachusetts, to the stage of the Willits Community Theater in Willits, California, where the Belle of Amherst told us her story. We began our conversation when I asked Emily Dickinson why she chose to receive no visitors in her home for so many years. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. Why should I socialize with village gossips? Oh, I, I prefer my father's home and my garden. It's my world. I need no other. The people who you write to, um, your friend uh, Charles Wadsworth in Philadelphia, is very much a part of your life. Yes. Yes, I write to many. Um, it is more difficult for them to write to me it's at times. It seems that I'm the one who keeps the connection alive. Tell us about Charles Wadsworth, a very important person in your life, yet you only personally saw him twice in 20 years. Yes, um, I first met Charles Wadsworth, or saw him really, when I was 24. It was in Philadelphia years ago. Vinnie and I were... Um, we're staying in Philadelphia with the Colemans, and we had just visited father after he was a congressman in Washington. And when I first laid eyes on Reverend Wadsworth, as it was as if heaven's own lightning had struck me. He seemed like Gabriel standing before the congregation. And uh, well, when I, when I went back to Amherst, I couldn't shake off the enchantment. So I wrote to him, and he wrote back, and, and I detected in his answers a response that was not unlike my own emotions, but more subtle and tentative, hidden. You know he was married and had a family, but that didn't stop me from worshipping him. What were the circumstances of when you visited with him again? Well, he came to me, 
about three years ago. Vinnie came running to get me. She said, the gentleman with the deep voice wants to see you, Emily. I thought, again, his voice is at the door. I feel the old degree. I hear him ask the servant for such a one as me. I took a flower as I went, my face to justify. He never saw me in this life. I, I might surprise his eye. I crossed the hall with mingled steps. I silent passed the door. I looked on all this world contained, just his face, nothing more. He came suddenly. I, I didn't expect it, just from the pulpit to the train and, and stayed but a few moments. That was all I needed. It was enough. I'm content now. Did your correspondence with him continue after the second visit? Oh, yes. Yes, I, I knew of him until his last years of life. The Civil War was a great source of turmoil for you. You wrote over 800 poems during one year in, in the Civil War. What was that turmoil? What was the angst that you, that you suffered, that you wrote about? Well, I can hardly say. It was as if there was some part of my soul that longed to <clears throat> escape. And I really cannot tell. I, I hardly know what I wrote in those times. You know, I, I just followed my pen and my heart. And... And when I was finished with my writing, I would put it in a box and, and not look at it again. When you wrote, did you labor over the words or did they just drop out of the tip of your pen? Ah, uh, well, the ones that dropped out were the gifts. <laughs> but it was much more common for me to, to labor, to uh, earn their respect, their regard, to invite them in. The words. The words, yes. Words are my life. I look at words as if they were entities, sacred beings. Tell me more. There are words to which I lift my hat when I see them sitting on a page. Sometimes I write one, like um, circumference. Oh, and I look at its outlines until it starts to glow, brighter than any sapphire. Yes, I, I hesitate which words to take when I write a poem. A poet can choose but a few words, and they have to be the chiefest words, the best words. The, the art of writing a poem, is that something that you found emanated from your soul, that Genesis was within you, or was it something that you studied at uh, Amherst and at Mount Holyoke? Oh, <laughs> well... I would say that my soul, as you put it, was called to poetry long before I ever set foot in the, in the halls of Amherst Academy or Mount Holyoke. Um, I read, I read much when I was a young girl. I've, I loved words, I loved the work of Shakespeare and Mrs. Browning, 
Keats, Shelley, Emily Bronte. What an afternoon for heaven when Bronte entered there. When she came here to visit you? When I became acquainted with her soul through her work. Describe that afternoon of heaven. Well, it's difficult to describe. I, I have written poems to her, thanking her. I would that I could travel to, to where she lived and thank her myself, but it's all I can do to thank her in my poems. She'll never read them, but they're there. You have said that uh, publication is the auction of the mind of man. Only seven of your poems were published during your lifetime. Was that your choice? If you could have published more, would you have done that? Well, there was a time when all I wanted was publication, when I was obsessed with it, really. But it became clear to me later that Perhaps the world wasn't ready for my poems. That perhaps no one would ever read them. They were like an undelivered letter lost in transit. And um, I understood that my barefoot rank was better. What do you mean your barefoot rank? Well, that I didn't need the fame and adulation that comes from outside. You know, how, how dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog. You were, um, I believe, protected in many ways. Your solitude was, was held sacred by your sister Lavinia, who you call Vinnie. Was that something that you asked her to do, or was there some other way that that came about? Well, dear Vinny, she, she was my closest and best friend all my life. So devoted, and I think that Vinny, being the good soul that she was, knew what I needed. I never had to ask. Your other family members, you have an older brother and uh, and some nephews. Tell us about those, how they lived in your heart, in your mind, what they meant to you. Well, Austin, my brother Austin, he and I were closest when we were young. Austin and I were most unlike everyone else and were therefore more dependent on each other for delight. He married uh, Susan Gilbert, and they lived in a home just next door to us. Their home was called the Evergreens, and this is Homestead, of course. Austin and Sue gave me a niece and two nephews. Um, Ned and Martha are the oldest, and, and little Gilbert was born when Ned was 14. Uh, so sweet. Once, when he was stung on the arm by a wasp, he begged Sue through his tears to read the Bible to the wasps. And uh, when Sue tried to teach him to sing There's No Place Like Home, he broke in, Yes, there is too, over at Aunt Emily's. Yes. But uh, 
October is a mighty month, for in it little Gilbert died at eight years, typhoid. Was there anything that could be done about typhoid, other sicknesses? I suppose the doctors did all they could, and the soul took care of the rest. Did you have any personal bouts with those kinds of illnesses? Yes. Um, when I was 30, I had a trouble with my eyes, and I, I had to go to a hospital in Boston, I believe. It was, it was dreadful to, to be separated from home and family, and I wasn't supposed to read, I wasn't supposed to write, but I wrote letters anyway from the hospital. And of course, some friends and family did come to visit me. And then, well, later in my life, I did have a few times of fainting and laying unconscious. Odd. I suppose it happens to us all. I'd like to take a moment and say that we're talking with poet Emily Dickinson, brought to us in the person of actress Wendy Norris, and we're visiting in the parlor of the Dickinson family home, carried from Amherst, Massachusetts, to the stage of the Willits Community Theater. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Emily, I'd like to ask you, if you could, to please read us one of your many hundreds of poems that uh, is one of the most important to you. Mm. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory as he defeated dying, on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph burst, agonized and clear. What motivated you? What's the background of, of that poem? <laughs> well, I suppose it occurred to me after I had received Professor Higginson's response to my poetry. I held great hopes that my correspondence with him would result in publication. That was the time in my life when I was obsessed with the desire for publication. But unfortunately, it was not to be. I suppose Professor Higginson, like many, didn't understand my work. He thought my meter spasmodic, my rhymes bad. He thought I was uncontrolled. So after that disappointment, I, I became ill. But uh, after that, it became clear to me that um, my meridian had passed, and I was not destined for that sort of fame. 
even though it was what I had wanted most. The fame of publication. Yes. I'd like to ask you about religion. It played an important part in your life, yet you remained a skeptic. Yes, well, everyone in the family was religious, except for me. And they addressed an eclipse every morning that they called Our Father, which art in heaven. I can still hear Father say in a most militant way, I say unto you. Well, it always gave me a chill. Why must religion be made so grim, so dull? Why must we be made to feel guilty? Sermons, sermons, sermons. I, I only ever heard one sermon that I really liked, and that was when Reverend Dwight preached on unbelief. Yes, sermons on unbelief always did attract me. Describe some of those, the unbelief sermons. Well, there was, there was such a strong call, I suppose, in the, in the village, and even when I went to Mount Holyoke, especially at Mount Holyoke, for those to renounce the world, to give up their life to God, whoever that may be. And I just couldn't imagine renouncing the world. There's so much beauty here. I find ecstasy in living. The mere sense of living is joy enough. Take all away from me, but leave me ecstasy. Where was the ecstasy that you found living here on the homestead and receiving so few people, uh, communicating or going outside so infrequently? Well, for my companions, I had the hills and the sundown and my dog, Carlo, large as myself, who my father bought me. And they are better than beings because they know, but don't tell. And the noise in the pool at noon excels my piano. Emily, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at the end of a visit. And that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Oh, my. Well, I suppose it would have to be Jane Eyre. Yes. Yes, that one completely captivated me. Well, of course, I... I read it first when I was much younger, but it's always remained one of my favorites. I suppose I recognize myself a bit in Jane. Emily Dickinson, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mr. Vogel. And Wendy Norris, welcome to Radio Curious. Hello. How is it that you uh, became a friend of Emily Dickinson and portrayed her so magnificently here on the stage of the Willits Community Theater? Mm. Well, I first met Emily, if you will, um, in my junior honors English class at Willits High School. And um, I think my teacher, uh, Cynthia Evans, must have loved Emily as well, because when the way that she read her poems made me fall in love with her. And... Um, 
since that time, I've, I've read her um, on my own. And I had the, some concept, it was just brewing under the surface, that I wanted to do something dramatic, something to make Emily Dickinson accessible to people here in the 90s in America. Um, she is recognized as one of our great American poets and one of the few women poets who are recognized. But I think so few people really um, can grasp her. And I don't know, somehow for me, I felt um, just open to her work. It just resonated with me. And I wanted to be able to get that across somehow. I thought, you know, theater would be a good vehicle. I was considering creating something of my own. But I found out that there was already a play written about her, um, The Bell of Amherst, and it was written in the 70s and first performed by actress Julie Harris on Broadway, and she won a Tony for it. So I read the play and was um, very intrigued, and uh, Mike Adair from the Willits Community Theater suggested that I, that I take it on. What do you personally have to do to uh, become Emily when you walk out here on stage to an audience full of uh, faces? Oh boy, you should see, <laughs> you should see my warm-ups. <laughs> um, I think what I have to do most, honestly, is um, let go of my preconceived ideas. It's really more a process of removing myself, my egos, my worries, and just making room for Emily and for whatever is supposed to happen. How do you achieve that process of letting go? Well, um, I've done a lot of wonderful things in my rehearsals with um, Freddie Long, who's been my assistant director, invaluable. Um, just pushing the boundaries, testing the limits, um, going to extremes of emotion, breaking open my ideas of what's appropriate and what's not, and um, just allowing myself to be surprised. And again and again, finding that that surprise of some feeling or some um, moment is, is really what's supposed to happen. Do you find that you're surprised in different ways at during different performances? Yes, yes, and, I, and that's really my aim, too, is to, to surprise myself, to be spontaneous enough to let something new happen. Because when it gets choreographed and I know too much, too well, what's going to happen, it becomes a little flat for me. Can you tell us what some of those new things are, what the feeling of surprise is? Oh, it might be just where I go when I deliver a line. It might be a change in volume, a change in emotion. Um, where you go on the stage. Right, right. Um, I might, instead of going to my desk, perhaps I might walk out to the audience or, you know, just uh, following um, my intuition in the moment. Do you have plans um, for other acting? Oh, yes. I don't think, <laughs> the theater's not going to get rid of me for a while. <laughs> um, I love it. And I also would like to do some directing, too, because being sort of in charge of this show has given me um, just a sample of that and how satisfying that can be, too. I, I think I would not do another show where I acted and directed, however. 
and we're the only person on stage. Right, right. A one-person show is, is a very different kind of endeavor from an ensemble. Yet you're in rhythm to yourself. Yes, and that, being the, the only person on stage, also affords me the luxury of being very spontaneous because I don't have anyone else waiting for my cues. I don't have to be anywhere at any time. And since my lighting technician, Joe Dowling, is so skillful, <laughs> he can pretty much follow me wherever I go. And, and, you know, I don't have to be really tied to certain kind of blocking. Well, Wendy, I want to thank you very much for being with us and sharing Emily Dickinson with us. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I just asked Emily. If you could please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, actually, surprise, surprise, I read a novel that came out recently. It's called I Never Came to You in White. And it is a novel about Emily Dickinson. And it's written in the form of letters that are... Um, by her and about her from people in her life. So, Why is it that she always wore white? Do you know? Um, there's a lot of symbolism in her work, in her poems, and even in her letters about white. Um, the color of purity, the color of the soul, um, white belonging to the other world. Um, I think she really felt like she belonged a bit to another world, um, that she dwelled in a, a place that was sort of not of this world in some ways. Yeah. Wendy Norris, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Barry. I'd like to read to you about Trust from the Book of Qualities by J. Ruth Gendler. Trust is the daughter of truth. She has an objective memory, neither embellishing nor denying the past. She is an ideal confidant, gracious, candid, and discreet. Trust talks to people who need to hear her. She listens to those who need to be heard. She sits quietly with those who are skeptical of words. Her presence is subtle, simple, and undeniable. Trust rarely buys round-trip tickets because she is never sure how long she will be gone and when she will return. Trust is at home in the desert and the city, with dolphins and tigers, with outlaws, lovers, and saints. When Trust bought her house, she tore out all the internal walls, strengthened the foundation, and rebuilt the door. Trust is not fragile, but she has no need to advertise her strength. She has a gambler's respect for the interplay between luck and skill. She is the mother of love. This interview with actress Wendy Norris, portraying poet Emily Dickinson, was recorded in early December 1997 on the stage of the Willits Community Theater in Willits, California. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. 
We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.